Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Exit Point. In this episode, Matt is going to be interviewing Brett Kistler. For the listeners, can you tell us a little bit about Brett? Yeah, Brett's a, an incredibly experienced base jumper. He's got nearing 2,000 jumps, but I think what really sets him apart is that all of those jumps are done all over the world, everything from Baffin Island to Singapore and uh, all over Europe. Um, but the thing that in, I enjoy most about Brett is that he's one of the most authentic people that I've ever met. And so every time I get to talk to him, it's a great pleasure because he brings a, an incredible amount of honesty and transparency and you know thought to every conversation. He's very open-minded. And, uh, so I just really wanted to get his take on uh, base jumping and you know what it's like to be human in a sport that is incredibly dangerous. I know Brett also to be very articulate, an excellent conversationalist, and a very experienced base jumper. I'm really looking forward to listening to this episode. So without further ado, let's get Brett on the track. Hey, Brett Kistler, welcome to the show. Man, this has been one that uh, I've been waiting for for a long time. You and I to get a conversation on tape. We've had so many in person. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I'm really I've been really looking forward to talking with you on a podcast sometime, whether it was going to be my podcast or your podcast or whatever format that would be. And here we are. Sweet. Well, I kind of prefaced this uh, earlier um, saying that I was just going to start with a really simple question. um, And here it is. Uh, What do you want to talk about? Yeah. Well, interesting. That is an interesting question. There's so much that I would love to talk about. And so I'm just going to start riffing here on really what has what has been the most profound thing that I've learned through my base career. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into any background. A lot of people listening to this might know me or know of me. A lot of the newer people probably don't. Um, I haven't been particularly active in a while. Yeah, let's um, get into a little bit of a background. And just uh, so I can add some in, I, I met Brett in 2014 wingsuit base jumping, uh, in the, uh, Swiss Alps. And I had just picked up my title sponsor, which he had been associated with for the previous several years. And so, uh, he was a, a pretty cool mentor to find just on a, on a random mountain. Uh, and then since then, uh, I might, uh, be remiss in not saying that, uh, Brett has been a main facilitator in, uh, can we call it consciousness expansion? <laughs> in the community. Um, so not only an incredibly experienced, uh, base jumper in my opinion, but also, uh, an incredibly experienced, um, just thinker. Um, so maybe, uh, you can fill us in on where you started with your base career and, uh, you know, what led you to base jumping in the first place? Yeah. So I started skydiving when I was 18 and base jumping when I was 19, uh, had, you know, my first base jumps were at Bridge Day, 2005, I believe. And from there, ended up completing roughly 1,500 skydives, 1,500-ish base jumps um, uh, over the course of about 15 years. And my most recent activity base jumping was about like 2019 or so, just before the pandemic. And haven't been jumping much since, but I've been exploring a lot of other avenues that are a continuation of my base jumping journey. Nice. Uh, anything, uh, in particular that you'd like to share on the continuation side? 
Yeah. Yeah. So going back to kind of how it became a continuation versus continuing in the sport uh, as my primary objective, uh, going back to around, you know, 2016, we had a couple of years where it was just really rough. We lost a lot of people. Uh, and it started to get to the point for me where, you know, it, it wasn't just people that, you know, they were inexperienced or new or they were making different kinds of mistakes or they were just the ones who were charging super hard, not the way that I particularly saw myself as charging. But I st we started to lose a lot of people that I considered my peers, uh, those who I trusted to be making really good decisions and who I would have conversations with at the Horner about, about the very things that might actually end up killing them later and then having that happen. Are we talking uh, 2015, 16, 17 season? Yeah, yeah, that, that range. Um, just to qualify this for people listening, in the 2016 season, uh, we lost 10 people in 11 days. That's yeah. how quickly people were going in at that time. Yeah, and I had... I knew about 16 or so people who died that summer. Um, and one of them that hit me really, really hard was JVH, uh, John Van Horn, who, you know, he's, he's a great example of somebody who I consider to be a peer, similar skill levels, similar methodology and approach to the sport. And yet he was taken by a similar kind of mistake that had been made before. Um, and so I, that one hit me really, really hard. And so I, what I decided to do was to step back from the sport and I decided I want to inquire and figure out what it is that is killing us. Those of us who are finding ourselves repeating mistakes that we know not to make, like what is it that makes us repeat mistakes that we know not to make? I'm not worried about making new mistakes. It's like what makes us do the things that we know not to do in the moment that get us okay. killed? Where, where are you at in that? Uh, have you, have you gotten any conclusions? Yeah. So, I mean, initially there's the, the, the blanket response there is, well, it's complacency, right? Complacency kills. We all, we all know complacency kills, but what exactly is complacency? And I want to ask you this question. What is, what is your answer to what is, what is complacency? What is complacency? Um, well, a combination of ignorance and overconfidence. Um, you know, the idea that, uh, something that is inherently dangerous can be done safely. That's uh, kind of my short version of complacency. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the way, the way that I've come to understand it, uh, complacency and other, other factors and other motivations that make us jump. The key issue here is a mispriority of fear. Complacency, you could describe as not being afraid enough of the things that are relevant, which might mean that you've suppressed that fear or you've gotten used to it. So you're ignoring the signal, or it might mean that some other fear has come in and taken control that you might not even be aware of. And so examples of this might be the fear of being rejected by your peers might overstep your fear of how, how well you can perform in these wind conditions that you're looking at or yeah. So you about to say something. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, for now, what I'm understanding is that complacency in your book is a misappropriation of fear. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the things that you had mentioned about complacency, like overconfidence, well, what is, what is overconfidence, but a 
misshapen experience of fear. And I think this is really important when you get into the motivations of what brings us into base jumping is that a lot of us really want to feel certain things. We want to feel competence. And sometimes if we feel fear that that makes us feel like we're not competent when in reality, feeling the fear actually makes us more competent feeling and processing it. And I think I, I make a distinction between fear and panic here. Panic is fear that is resisted. Panic is fear that is out of, uh, I don't want to say the word control, but it's, it's something that it's, it's panic is fear that, uh, it's in like a positive feedback loop and it gets, gets away from us, takes us out of ourselves. But if we stay in ourselves, uh, and we're feeling our fear, then the fear is the signal that recalibrates our priorities so that we don't end up in what we would call complacency. Okay. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's go back to a bit that you just said, because it's interesting having come up in, um, like extreme sports in the 1990s and two thousands where like it was no fear was the, the marker. That was the, the statement, you know, the experience was, uh, you know, marked by people who were fearless. And it sounds like you're saying, uh, kind of the opposite. So, Mm. Um, where does, uh, where does that, you know, fit into your scheme here where like, yeah. uh, we grew up in an age where if you had any kind of fear, then you just weren't experienced enough. Right. Well, that's, I would say that that's the, the culture of an identity of fearlessness. And when you have an identity of fearlessness, if you, if you approach this sport with the perspective that I'm going to conquer my fear so that I no longer feel it that is a recipe to bring you straight into complacency. Totally agree. But I would also argue I would also argue that the thing that brings us to this sport is that on some level we really want to feel that fear. There's some there's something about the fear of death that brings us into presence, that brings us out of the abstract world of our head and all the you know, all the all the minor issues of life and into into the present moment. And so it's actually that fear that we seek, but it's also that fear that we fear that we're that we're afraid of. And that my my conjecture here is that avoiding that fear is the thing that breeds complacency, and it's the thing that allows other fears. And as social mammals, we have a lot encoded into our social nervous system around fear. You know, it's not just the fear of being uh, annihilated on a pile of rocks but there's the fear of being rejected by our tribe and our society. That is just as much of a fear for, for many of us. And when, when our social fears take over our physical fears or become more dominant than them, that's when you find yourself in complacency, ego, all the, all the things that we talk about that are, uh, that induce pilot error in the moment and have killed many of our friends. That's like everyone sitting on the top of the cliff and everyone kind of you know, cajoling each other into jumping and then somebody being like, well, like I'm going to, I'm going to send it versus the person that's uh, like thinking like, Ooh, like I want to, I want to walk down, but I also don't want to be the person that walks down from this group. The first person Mm -hmm. to say like, no, this isn't comfortable for me. Right. Right. And it's like, what is, what is the fear there? Well, the fear is maybe I won't be invited on these kinds of jumps. If I'm the one that walks down and makes everybody wait by the car for four hours or, I might not be invited to events. I might not get sponsorships or just something more deep and subconscious of that. I might not be able to see myself as the competent rager charger of the castle that makes me feel value 
from whatever my childhood experience might have been. Yeah. And strange because like the most experienced people are the ones that generally uh, walk down. <laughs> you know, yeah. the most confident are the ones that are, you know, picking the perfect conditions to jump, not the ones that are, you know, getting away with it. And I can also say from like experience that, uh, you know, there's another fear of being seen as judgmental. You know, if, if mm. you're the one that the first one to walk down, then like everyone looks at you like, oh, look at this person judging us for our decisions. And it's like, whoa, like, <laughs> I, yeah, no. Or there's, there's another way that fear can get complexified here. If you're, if you're at an exit point and you, you have decided that it's not safe for you to jump and that you want to go down and you're also afraid of the way that people will respond to that, then you're going to bring it to them with some kind of forceful like better than this, like talking down to them, like, Hey guys, this is dangerous. You should not be jumping here. We should all be going down. And then that's actually going to invite the thing that you're afraid of, which is the social rejection and finding yourself in that situation where others want to jump and they're making you wrong for not, uh, because of the way that you brought it up. So I've seen this happen a, a lot throughout, throughout my, uh, my, my base career where a mentor or somebody who really had that wisdom and that experience had fear of a student or just somebody else that they were jumping with and they saw something dangerous and their fear of being involved in an incident, their fear of having to make that phone call, their fear of losing their friend brought them to, to yell or be angry with, you know, with the person for doing what they were doing. And coming from a place of, and again, that just becomes another form of ego to be better than somebody else and telling them that you know better for them is a great way to be rejected and a great way for them to shut down to you. So there's there's a lot of different kinds of fears here. And so I the the invitation that I have is this is a sport that we all got into because we have some kind of a love relationship or at least a curiosity and fear, or we wouldn't be doing this. And so the the invitation is to really feel what is it that you are actually the most afraid of? And what happens if you let yourself actually feel that fear, whether it is interpersonal social fear or it's identity fear? Uh, and, you know, how do you keep present? How do you stay present with the ever present physical fear that your body is always fear feeling, whether or not you have convinced yourself you're no longer afraid? You may have just subconsciously stamped out the feeling of fear, but it's there. Everybody who has been complacent knows deep down that a part of them knew the dangers and yeah. was choosing not to pay attention. Yeah, I, I can relate to that, especially early on in my career where my goal was to just overcome fear. I saw it as kind of an enemy, you mm -hmm. know? And so I, I did things that were incredibly dangerous and just tried to reframe my body's, um, you know, ability to feel fear. And eventually that got really, really dangerous. You know, if, if you, you know, step on that emotion such that it's so quiet, you know, you don't even really notice it, then, you know, you're losing an incredible sensor. And that's when you get into <laughs> some uh, unsustainable jumping for sure. You know, and nowadays uh, I can say that, you know, fear, the fear response has actually saved my life on so many occasions. It's like not even funny. Yeah. And so to speak to an example of how, how, you know, our, our childhood and our upbringing and our prior experience can, can color the way that we jump and 
really is it's unavoidable that it does for all of us. Um, some something that brought me to jumping, I would say, something that shaped my consciousness in such a way that made me attracted to to jumping was that when I was a kid, I had I had an older brother. He was six years older than me. He had a bunch of friends. They used to do all kinds of cool things. They'd make, they'd make go karts. They do uh, like dirt biking and paintball and all kinds of activities that me being six years younger really wanted to be a part of, really wanted to be involved with. And they also, you know, they had their own traumas and whatever, and they they would do a lot of hazing. Um, they, so one one kind of example of a story here is that they would build what's called a potato cannon or potato gun. So you'd get a bunch of PVC pipes and you'd make a chamber and a barrel and jam a potato down the barrel, fill the chamber with something like, uh, traditionally it's done with hairspray, which is quite flammable, but they would do it with like map gas just to make it <laughs> super extra powerful. And they'd, you know, I'd, I'd be with them cause I'm like, this is cool. It's chemistry, it's engineering, it's hanging out with my bro and his friends and, you know, feeling that connection, uh, feeling that mentorship. And that's something that I really wanted was this like connection with my older bro and his friends and to be doing what the, what they're doing and to be welcome. But also I was the youngest and, you know, they would, I, I very quickly find myself chased around the yard by the potato gun and having, you know, supersonic potatoes whizzing by my head. <laughs> uh, and you know, we'd be playing paintball and sometimes I'd be on a team and then suddenly find that both teams were against me and just getting railed. And, oh uh, God. so I, I, one of the things that, that happened during that time is I learned that a, I, when I'm hanging out with these people, I am constantly in some form of danger. My body was feeling this, like this threat. And also the more threat was recognized by them, the more they'd like tease me and like poke me. So I learned to be afraid and also suppress my fear as a form of getting connection. So I learned that the social connection was more important than my physical safety, as long as my physical safety was above a certain threshold of not dying. You know, the, the fear would come out when I had a potato gun pointed at my head, but when we were just hanging out in the garage, working on, uh, you know, working on go-karts, the fear would be just more suppressed and I could be there and learning but also always having a little bit of that fear under. So bring that into base jumping now. Uh, I have this ability that I learned to suppress the physical fear and at the same time, be so nonchalant as to be able to develop personal connections with people. And base jumping is such a perfect uh, theater for that. You know, standing on an exit point when everyone's feeling fear and everyone's, you know, everyone's a little bit naked in their, uh, in their nervous response to whatever's going on. And also there's this brotherhood element, this sisterhood, this camaraderie aspect. And so it's, it really, sh it really fit that form of being at risk and through like in, in the space of that risk, being in connection with people, uh, including, you know, those who are older than me, mentors, I got into base at like 18, 19. So for me, everybody was older. They met, they, they kind of fit that, uh, that mode of somebody who was, uh, kind of like a brother figure. Not everybody that had peers to my age, but there were a lot of, you know, older figures that I had a lot to learn from. So that, that's one of the things that kind of brought me to it, but it also set me up for a lot of risk and a lot of failure. 
not necessarily failure. I didn't have, I never actually had any fatal, obviously accidents didn't injure myself base jumping ever, but I definitely made a lot of decisions that were not optimal. And yeah, uh, cool stories to tell on that one. Who boy. Yeah. Um, Hmm. Let me, maybe let me one that has a uh, fear involved where like, uh, you have a misappropriation. Yeah. Let's see. Um, yeah. I mean, a great example would be my third base jump. I had gone to bridge day. I'd made two base jumps and was feeling really great about it. And then I got invited by my local crew in Northeast Ohio to a smokestack. And so I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to go jump this smokestack. And you know, it was a reasonably tall smokestack. It had a decent ish landing area. Uh, you know, theoretically it was, a. as far as Northeast Ohio is concerned, it was kind of just what people were jumping. So I was like, yeah, cool. I'm going to go do this. And you know, the, the desires there were, I want to be a part of this group. I want to get in with this crew. I want to do the jump. I want to develop my skills. I want to be seen as somebody who's competent, all those, all those things. Um, and of course I just absolutely was not ready for that jump. Uh, I didn't even have the gear awareness to bring a stash bag. <laughs> uh, I had, I had a borrowed rig that, uh, you know, I'd used, I'd borrowed for bridge day and he let, the person let me keep it for a little longer. And so I show up and I don't have a stash bag and they're like, what, what's, what's this? And like, so I had like a white trash bag that I was going to use as my stash bag and I didn't have <laughs> their correct size pilot shoot. So they gave me the correct size pilot shoot. And so here I am like, this is, I know the, I know the way that you teach base jumping and this is the exact opposite <laughs> <laughs> showing up with no clue. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like my surrogate big brother and his friends or something are going to teach me how to do this. Like, show me what's up. <laughs> yep. And we get, you know, we get up to the smokestack and like, I didn't, I didn't have the correct size pilot shoot. So instead of doing a free fall, we did a PCA, which actually was the better choice for safety all around. But my initial plan had been to do, you know, go and throw. And it was dark. I couldn't see the landing area. I, I remember and this, this is how I know that I was in over my head is that I was actually feeling terror the entire time, not just a comfortable level of fear, but I was actually feeling terror. And when I jumped, I had this like blue screen of death in my face. And then I came back out when the parachute opened and then I was like flying it and I couldn't see the landing area. I could kind of see it. There was like a glow stick there. I come into land and I couldn't see how high I was. And I basically stalled and would have probably broken my back except that I landed in a mulch pile. And, you know, I was basically just like in resistance the entire way down trying to just not die rather than oh, flying my parachute with agency and watching where I was going and referring to a well of knowledge and understanding that I'd built over time. I was just in it. And that's an example of having optimized for connection and my jumping ambitions over actually having the safety in my body that I was actually prepared for the jump. Dang. Okay. So um, I'm curious to get into some words with you after that incredible story, because I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, have been on exit points and have mislabeled what they're feeling because, you know, the, the actual physical feeling of it can be so close. So, so far we've mentioned panic, fear, and terror. 
And mm. so in your opinion, like where are the dividing lines between these things? And how does one know that they're in a panic state versus a fear state versus a, you know, a, um, a terror state? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. So, you know, you, you've heard the phrase, we've talked about this before that the other side of fear is excitement. You know, if you go back to a lot of the old wisdom traditions, uh, like Chinese medicine and some others, there's, there's this idea that every emotion has a virtue on the other side of the emotion, or at least all the, the difficult emotions. So on the other side of sadness or grief, there's joy. On the other side of fear, there's excitement. Um, you know, and the other things are like on the other side of jealousy, there's compersion or like different. I don't know if that was a Chinese medicine thing, but we, <laughs> you know, in the poly community talk about that kind of thing a lot. Um, and the idea is when you fully let a, a feeling through you, it transforms into something else. And the way that you can tell if you are in, or at least the way that I tell, if I'm, if I'm in over my head is if my fear is actually expansive, if I feel my fear and I'm resisting it, it feels constrictive, right? If you're, if you're, if you're resisting the fear, you're tense, your movements are a little bit jerky, your speech is maybe a little bit stuttered or impaired, you're not thinking clearly, right? Okay. But if you actually let that fear move through you, and if that fear moves through, it becomes excitement, and there's there's an elevation. Your your body is metabolically preparing for what you're about to do, and that's more of an expansive state. And when you're in when you're in a, a competent fear that is transforming into excitement, you're standing at the exit point and your world gets bigger. You see more detail in the things that you're looking at. You, you feel more spatial resolution and, you know, there's, there's this feeling that you get, right? So you're saying that that present moment is actually fear induced. The thing that people mostly talk about when they have that time dilation where they can see, you know, the butterflies wings flapping and everything gets really, um, like really vibrant. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's adrenaline, you know, adrenaline is, is a, uh, it's a, it is a modifier that makes your body more elevated and prepared to act. And that is that feeling that we love that that feeling that we, that we really enjoy when we've completed a jump and we're flooded with it and we're just excited that that's that feeling of adrenaline and, you know, other, other, uh, hormones as well. But so, so this, this distinction that I make between healthy fear, uh, and terror or panic is that there's, first of all, you can have a healthy fear that you're resisting. And to the extent that you resist that fear, that fear is not able to reorganize your consciousness and your body and your metabolic system to prepare you properly for what you're about to do. So you're basically jumping with one hand behind your back if you're not fully feeling the fear. Secondly, if you feel the fear and it doesn't process through to some kind of excitement, then there's probably something internally that knows that you're not ready for what you're about to do or knows that you haven't yet accepted the risk of what you're about to do. Man, we're saying so much here. Okay, we got to go back a couple points because uh, this is something that I think it's said a ton, but I, I believe that you have a better line on it. And it's uh, an emotion moving through you. Like I hear yeah. that so much of like, let it pass through you, let it move through you. So, you know, can you give us some practical magic on what that actually looks like? Yeah, what that means. So an emotion moving through you, one, one way to think about emotions is it's, it's a bottom-up reorganization of your entire being, of your system. From from the body with you know endocrine response and cortisol and 
you know, all these meta metabolic shifts that prepare you for, you know, what your body predicts is about to occur. Uh, and then there's the emotional, uh, there's the emotional background that your, that your consciousness is in so that, you know, if you're afraid, if you are in an elevated state, if you are in a excited state, uh, you are more likely to be thinking quickly and kind of, uh, shaping your consciousness towards things that are really relevant to the moment. And when you're relaxed and the opposite of this, when you're in sort of a parasympathetic dominant relaxed state, that's when you're more brainstorming, you have more divergent thinking, you're, you're thinking more creatively, but you don't have time to think creatively when you're in the middle of a wingsuit flight and you're going between some trees, you need to be doing <laughs> convergent thinking where your input output, uh, loop is very tight so that the moment something occurs, you don't even think about it. Your body is already processing what to do based on your past experience and all of your training and all of the reflexes that you've built in through, through all of your, all of your practice. So I would say that one way to describe emotions moving through you is that the emotions are recalibrating you to prepare you for the moment that your mind, that your senses have predicted, that your body has predicted from your sensory input. Okay. Another, so yeah, go ahead. In other words. Yeah. Well, another example of an emotion moving through you is sadness or grief. You know, if you have many, many of us have lost a lot of friends in the sport and we've had this experience where you go through all the different stages. And one of those stages is denial. And denial is that state where you're just not ready to accept the loss. And so you're in some level of resistance. You're not ready to feel the loss. And in that state, you're still in the picture. You're still in the, the situation where you might pick up the phone to call your dead friend and not realize that they're dead until you do that. And you're like, oh yeah, they're dead. I can't call them. So there's still information and predictions that, you're, that your body and your mind are making that are not accurate. And then once you've processed that grief, when that grief finally moves through, that's when your model of the world has been updated with, with that loss. And it's like, okay, yeah, I can't actually call my dead friend. They are dead. I'm, it's not even going to occur to me as a thing to do anymore once I've processed it. But now once you've fully processed it, then you get to just experience the gratitude and the joy of ever having known them. Uh, and this happens in waves. And so can fear. Fear can move through in waves as well. So back to the exit point, um, one resisting fear is to not accept that the environment is dangerous and that you should be feeling this emotion. Accepting fear is to look at the reality of the situation of like, you're about to put yourself in a, in mortal danger and the fear is reasonable. Yeah. So the, the difference between fear and terror would be that if I'm, if I'm feeling my fear and I've accepted the outcome and the consequences and the risks, then it just turns into an elevation of my senses an elevation of my metabolism. And that we experience that as excitement, excitement, and also a, uh, a vigilance, right? There's a, there's a vigilance, a readiness and excitement. And you know, when you've, when you're standing at an exit point and you're feeling that that's that like, okay, things are good. This feels good. And if you're suppressing any part of that, then whatever information you're suppressing because it's inconvenient to you is that's where your blind spot is. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Where you, uh, you just kind of, uh, justify the poor conditions or, you know, you end up at an exit point that's slightly lower than you thought, or, you know, the, uh, wingsuit terrain is looking a little scarier than, you know, you had, uh, initially surveyed. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you're like, all right, I'm just going to block that one out. But then you actually do need all of that information in order to make it through the flight because those are the realities of what you're about to do. Right. Right. And you, you'll notice this at, when you're, when you're jumping with very experienced people, it's the ones who are the most experienced, who are the most open about their fear on an exit point. You know, I'm thinking about like Hank Kaler is an example of a person who he will just show exactly what he's feeling on an exit point. And, you know, the new guy will be the one who's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I got this. We're good. You know? And it's the new guy who will later on be pointed out as having had some complacency and blind spot in the way that they were jumping. And it'll be the person who's been fully feeling their fear and just being open about it, which also another tangent here is that being open about your fear actually permissions other people to feel their fear and it makes you and your whole crew safer. So are you a proponent then of vocalizing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think what what would happen? What would happen if over the course of the next 10 jumps, you and your crew all decided to, at the exit point before jumping, say one thing that they're afraid of. And it doesn't have to be about the jump. It could be, somebody could say, I'm afraid that I'm not competent enough with my canopy to land in this landing area. And feeling that fear, I still feel good enough about doing it, but I feel that fear. Another person could be, I'm afraid that you'll all think that I'm a pussy uh, if I walk down. Or I'm afraid that if I speak about the, the wind condition, then that'll make me look like I'm not actually very experienced. Or I'm afraid of talking about the line that we're flying because I don't actually know some of the things you guys are talking about here because you're more experienced than me. So I'm actually just making it look like I know what you're talking about while I'm actually trying to learn without asking questions. What would happen if that was the way that we actually approached exit points together? Well, I mean, I bet people would make a whole lot better decisions. I kind of take that for granted because I came up jumping with uh, my solid climbing partner, Ian Flanders. And so for the first 10 years of my base career, I had somebody that was, you know, an intimate partner that I could share everything with. And so it was no big deal for me to be like, oh, dude, I don't know if I can make that landing area or, you know, I'm afraid that these conditions aren't like great for me or whatever else. Like he was, I knew he had my back 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've experienced very little jumping with, uh, you know, groups that don't have that ability, but I, yeah, just hearing that that wouldn't be possible sounds incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. And, but it's, it's, it's the reality for many people and it's reality for all of us on some level. There's, there's some amount of suppression of our, of our, of our emotional wisdom that occurs all the time. And we've only really been speaking about the acute fear of being on a, on an exit point, but what about the, the broader general fears that we feel throughout an entire career? You know, there's an, an example here is that when I started base jumping, uh, or even when I just started thinking about base jumping, I would find myself in a normal daily life situation and I'd be afraid of something. I'd be anxious about my anxious about work or a project or anxious about some social thing. And I'd have this escape of closing my eyes and just imagining being in free fall. And in that free fall, I'd feel freedom. And a lot of us talk about jumping as a thing that brings us freedom. And my question there is, what does it like freedom from what? Yeah. And for me, I wasn't aware of any of that background of fear because I had developed this ability to suppress it and this identity that I'm a fearless person and this identity that I, that I I can keep it together in 
scary and dangerous situations. And so I wasn't actually recognizing that much of my life was actually driven by fear and that the jumping was actually some way that I could feel fear and feel like I was actually an agency where in many other areas of my life, I felt frozen and stuck. So you can spend an entire life in some low level freeze response. And, you know, for me, jumping was actually one of the things that punched through that so that I could recognize what it actually felt like to be in ownership of my fear. And then ask the question, well, what happens if I apply that to other areas of my life? You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's why I got into it in the first place as well for the quote unquote freedom aspect of it, because I thought my fear was holding me back from doing a lot of the other things in life that I wanted to do, you know, from, you know, pursuing a job that I wanted to, you know, approaching somebody that I was attracted to at a bar. Mm-hmm. And I figured like, well, if I get to the edge of, um, you know, the human experience by trying to overcome a fear of death, which you have to face when you're base jumping, then all of the rest of these will just kind of fall in line and will be relative non-factors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's like the first, you know, strategy of mine, which I'll, I'll say was not great was to just, uh, completely stamp out that fear through, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, over, um, what's the word for it? Uh, uh, overindulgence. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Over, overindulgence of, of what? overindulgence of, uh, like that fear inducing state until like it just got comfortable and normalized, you know, like, Mm. okay. Like you're feeling a ton of fear, but like I can still operate incredibly well through it. Um, and rather than letting like it flow through me, just, you know, (laughs) just stepping over the coming over the top of it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which like, you know, the, in an aggressive, highly dangerous, like way, um, was executable. Like it, it allowed me to execute in that environment, but like not with very much precision. And that would eventually became the problem because as like, I gained proficiency in base jumping, uh, you know, my precision needed to increase. You needed to land in tighter areas and pitch it at, you know, more precise timings and, you know, fly through trees and you can't just, you know, flex your way through that. Mm -hmm. And so this, yeah, this brings me to another thing, which is often we, we find ourselves in activities that will bring us to a certain emotional state that we subconsciously need to feel and resolve. An example, you see this outside of base jumping in, let's say like money, business finances, there's people who are just a hungry ghost for money. And no matter how much money they have, it never feels like enough because they never actually let in the feeling of of that I have enough, that feeling of satisfaction, that feeling of contentment. And I've been there myself with, with the money game. Uh, and that's been, that's been an interesting, we could do a whole podcast on my parallel journey with like the, the money and, uh, abundance or scarcity, the hungry ghost there. But I think a lot of us in, in adventure sports and action sports have a hungry ghost for fear. There's a certain level of fear that we are actually subconsciously wanting to experience. Uh, and it might be that there's, you know, for me with my, with that family history that I talked about, there's encoded somewhere deep in my subconscious. There's some level of existential terror of that. Something could happen at any moment that hurts me. And I don't feel it 
day to day, but it's somewhere there in the subconscious and it might come up as just ADD. It might just be that my subconscious is a little bit oriented towards threats. So when I sit down to get some work done, I don't feel as much, uh, you know, working memory available to me. I don't have as much focus. Uh, and that used to be the case very, very strongly before I started jumping. You know, I would find that when I, when I jumped afterwards, I would be able to focus and I'd be able to be present because some amount of that fear latent, this is my story now is that some of that fear that was latent in my system got to be processed in the jump. I got to go out and be in a situation where I was feeling that fear and feeling it in a way that I had agency and that made me feel in contact with myself and process that fear. So something that I think can happen is that if we're not really fully feeling our fear, then we can find ourselves on a treadmill of making things more and more scary, more and more dangerous, more and more intense and be having that hungry ghost thing, just like some people, just like you might have with money, just like you might have with love or sex or any of these other core drives and desires. But you could have, you could be a hungry ghost until you finally allow yourself to feel fully the existential terror of existence that exists for all of us. Yep. And some people, when they have a really, really close call, that'll be the moment where everything shifts for them. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I call that the road to Damascus moment where you get knocked <laughs> off your horse and blinded by the light. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, man, yeah, that was uh, that was for me my first wingsuit base season where like I nearly killed myself um, uh, jumping uh, in Italy, uh, having been on an exit point with many people who were more experienced than me, uh, lending some confidence to the terrain flight that I was about to do, but feeling an incredible amount of like rational and justifiable fear that, um, I wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, and that jump ending up in me having to make some pretty like severe last minute in the moment decisions that were a lot of luck (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, getting through that situation, um, having flown below terrain, having never flown below terrain. Uh, so yeah, Definitely. You know, you, you work your way down, you work your way down until, um, your body just like throws up that fear flag and like, you cannot suppress this anymore. Like you nearly died there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I noticed that we've been talking a lot about fear and there's, there's a couple, there's a whole nother piece to this. You know, there's all of our behavior is driven by approach and avoidance. So fear is this avoidance, this thing that keeps us from danger. But then there's the, what are we approaching? There's like, you know, love. What is it that we love? What is it that we, that we want? And the hungry ghost thing can occur there too. You know, there's, we can have a desire to feel competent. We can have a desire to trust ourselves. We can have a desire for camaraderie and connection. We can have a desire for adventure. And these are a whole nother aspect of what it is that motivates us and what we just do. out of uh, curiosity real quick, because uh, I love the words. Um, do you believe that fear and love are antonyms? Because quite often people like look at it as like fear and hate as the flip side of the coin. Um, but it seems like you just uh, presented fear and love as being um, opposites there. Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Cause I actually see them all as I see it all as love actually. If you're feeling fear, there's a love for yourself that, that, that is behind that fear. You know, there's, there's a desire to continue to exist. 
if you are afraid of having accident, right? Um, and that's that's one of the reasons why this, if if we categorize fear as something to be avoided or conquered or to not have any of, no fear, then we're actually cutting off love for ourselves. We're cutting off the parts of ourselves that are like, hey, is this really what I want to be doing right now? Or, hey, have we really thought through all of the consequences? You know, we I, I know that we're here with a bunch of our, you know, friends and on this exit point with somebody who we really want to impress. And that's great. I love that. I love myself enough to want to, you know, build a reputation in the sport and be trusted by others and given opportunities to do new kinds of jumps and go to events and all the things that come with that. And do I also love myself enough to prioritize my safety if those two things find themselves in apparent conflict? Okay, then what do you think about this statement? It comes from a, a pretty cool movie, and Sean Connery uh, says it at one point. Um, he says, uh, he who fears nothing loves nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say that he who fears nothing has just suppressed their love for themselves. And so and, like, if we look at that on like a sliding scale, can we also say that, you know, the more fear somebody has, or actually rather than that, um, how do you assign fear for yourself? You know, is the amplitude of your fear the same as it was when you started jumping? Um, and if not, why not? And if so, yeah. why so? Well, I mean, the, it shifts over time, right? You're not as afraid on your 150th jump or your thousandth jump as you were on your first jump for reasons. Part of those reasons are that your, your prediction, your subconscious and conscious, your, your body's prediction for what's going to happen is much more calibrated than it had been before. And you have a higher probability of the jump falling in certain ranges of what you consider success or at least predictable. And you know, in order for me to get as scared as I was on my first jump, I have to do something that involves something that I've never done before or something that involves a level of performance that is equivalent to like that. My, my likelihood of achieving that level of performance is equivalently unknown as my very first jump was. Okay. I'm, I'm also kind of asking like, has, uh, your love for yourself or others or the world shifted over that period such mm. that, uh, your fear has changed one direction or another? Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure I fully understand the question, but the, the thing that comes up in that question is that, you know, yeah, I have through, through the journey of self-exploration, that is the sport and the, the kind of hard choices, the hard realities that it brings to you, uh, including loss of friends, loss of, uh, you know, like injuries and deaths and the processing thereof. Like, obviously this, this is one of the things that basically any base jumper will say to you is that w when they've been jumping for a significant number of years, that it's about the people, yeah. you know, it's like the people are the most important thing. And a lot of it, a lot of it really just brought me into contact with what it is that, you know, being a human, being a social mammal, what is the most thing that the thing that is most important to us is connection. And whether that's being in connection with myself and my needs and my desires and understanding and being with what my, what my body and mind together really want from a jump when I'm standing at an exit point to being in connection with the environment 
and the wind and the line and my equipment and a landing area and my mood on that day and my emotions and being in connection with those that I'm jumping with so that we are fully supportive of one another and, you know, not, not supportive in a way that we are, you know, you'll find a lot of support in base jumping where people are like, yeah, you got this, uh, when somebody doesn't, and that's not support, you know? So it's like, what is, what is really truly supportive of not just each other's egos or our fragilities or our, uh, or our identities, but what is supportive of the deepest part of each of us that in some sense can't be destroyed, that can't be, that can't be lost with a shift in identity. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, maybe I can, um, wow, that was, that was incredible. I, for myself, like, let me explain a little bit. Maybe, uh, you'll have uh, a piece to hook on this. Um, in the beginning of like my jumping, like I did not have, let's say love for my legs <laughs> mm. at all. Like, I, I did not understand how fragile they were. I did not understand the inner workings of my ankles and the fact that like, if you injure them, they'll never be the same. And so love for that component of my body was quite low, which led me to be not afraid doing a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on seeing like our friends get like femur breaks and ankle breaks and seeing their lives change like drastically because of those injuries. Um, my love for my legs increased dramatically. And Mm. so did uh, my fear of doing things that I shouldn't have been doing, which then led me to like try and train a lot harder so that I I would then, you know, reduce that fear so I could do the things I wanted to do. But there's like one physical example of like, you know, what I'm talking about where, you know, my love over time for myself has shifted. And so my fear has shifted. And then going to your point of like, you know, the human connection part, like losing uh, our friends in that 2015, 16 season, you know, I did the same thing. Like I I stepped away from the game because my fear had, had increased dramatically to the point where it was no longer um, something that I could, uh, I couldn't ignore it, you know, and I, I looked at what they were leaving behind when they went in and totally reframed that thing in my head that was like, oh, well, you know, burn it at both ends and let's woohoo fucking party till impact. Like, mm-hmm. whoa, you know, my love for life, for uh, the things around me, for the things that they weren't going to get to experience, you know, markedly increased. And mm-hmm. so my fear was like at all time highs. And that's when I decided to, you know, get out of the sport for a little while and um, try and answer the same questions that you were asking of like, why is this happening? Um, I think the only time in my base jumping career where, uh, you know, fear was, um, you know, the least, I guess, and love for myself was highest was when I was trying to, you know, grow as a human being and get over some of these evolutionary, um, you know, fear patterns. And so like back to our, you know, points about, um, freedom, you know, in order to attain freedom, you know, I, I looked at it as like, okay, I love myself enough to put myself in jeopardy such that like I might die in order to, uh, give agency to the rest of my life. And so like fear was pretty low, even though risk and danger were quite high. 
Mm. Yeah, the freedom piece is interesting. Like the paradox here is that if you have this identity that I am a free person, being a free person means that like fuck authority, you know, fuck the man. I'm gonna go do whatever jump I want, and it's all about fucking charging the castle. And uh, I don't remember how you put it. Uh, uh, I know I'm I'm almost sounding like I'm a little bit speaking derogatorily here, and I don't mean to <laughs> even be doing no, that. No, but there's this it. like, yeah, send it. So there's like there's this send it attitude, and it's like, how free are you if you only feel free and that identity of proving that you're free? You know, if you if your jumping is a way of showing to yourself and the world how free you are and what freedom means then is that you're not you're not constrained by fear you're not constrained by what other people think of you you actually are you're driven by all of those things and how much freedom can there be found when you're like you know what i love myself whether i'm somebody who walks down from this jump i love myself whether i'm somebody who isn't part of the uh you know, whatever the, like the group think culture of this particular crew is right now, because I'm thinking about things that others aren't. Um, I love myself whether or not I bring up a concern that others think is ridiculous. Uh, I love myself whether or not I ever jump again. Like how, then what kind of freedom does that actually bring you? Even in your jumping, it might be for me in the past couple of years, I haven't had particularly strong interest in jumping though. I still love it. I may still go do it again sometime. And I also know that when I go jump again, it's going to be with a lot of awareness and paying attention to all of the signals from within me and not just the ones that are serving the way that I want to feel free. No, totally. And in that, yeah. and in that it's a deeper freedom. There's there's the freedom to point my my excitement and my ambition and my drive in so many directions. I can travel to places that aren't certain types of terrain. You know, I can learn from and hang out with and love people that aren't, you know, on the same, in, in the same kind of, uh, wavelength in, in certain ways. And there's so much freedom there and I don't lose, I don't lose the attraction or the, the love of what jumping brings to me and has brought to me. I totally agree with you. And, uh, I, I, again, I'll say that the initial strategy there was, um, radically unsustainable. Like it was a wild time for me to live through, uh, but not something that I'd ever want to go back to and, uh, you know, led to the most dangerous jumping years of my life. You know, mm -hmm. the fuck it, huck it, let's send it, you know, trying to, um, you know, <laughs> bash through that, uh, that evolutionary, like, you know, pattern was, uh, I don't know, in my opinion, not, uh, <laughs> not the best way to go about it, but Hey, you know, hindsight's 2020. 20. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm grateful for all the things I've learned. Some, some of them, you know, I don't know that I would have learned any other way because nothing else has brought me into such deep contact, such as, you know, it's something we haven't talked about competitiveness, right? That's a, that's a, some, something that we can have is that we want to be better than others, or we want to just be as good as others or compare ourselves or somehow stand out. And one of the things that I loved about um, that, that I love about air sports is that it's an individual sport. There can be competitions that's for the comp competition people, but, uh, I didn't really love, I didn't really like being in like team or competitive sports. I love being in just, you know, beating my own personal best or exploring, but I also had a little bit of an identity around that. And I didn't want to be the kind of person who was competitive. 
which, you know, meant that when, you know, when we were, when we met in the Alps and we were jumping and you had, you pulled out a G form wingsuit and I was like, wow, like I had no idea you were sponsored by G form too. Am I that out of the loop with my sponsor? Like, did I like, and then there's the whole, like, did I fuck up somewhere? Like, how did I let myself like lose control of this like resource, you know? And then in that there's this like, but I don't want to be the kind of person who's competitive. So I would like stuff that down and not let myself feel the jealousy. And then there'd be like a little bit of resentment and that like feeling a little bit of resentment for you and Ian in that moment really fucked with me when Ian died at the event that I invited you guys to that. I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to not be doing the competitive thing right now. I'm going to do the cooperative thing. They're, they're on board with my sponsor. This is great. I'm going to invite them to an event. That'll be good for this sponsorship for all of us. And I also just wasn't letting myself feel the jealousy. And then when what Ian died, that that part of feeling jealous was like, you know, the uh, the the jealous parts of us that we suppress, they they start to say some really fucking evil things sometimes. Like, <laughs> not evil, but like some things that are really scary to us. Like, yeah, you know, like what if what if this person had an accident and got out of my way? You know, like what if they just had like, you know, an injury that took him out for six months? Then like that would be convenient. But then there's the the conscious part of us. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't think like that. That's, that's ridiculous. That's like absolutely ridiculous. And then an accident happens. And then that part of you is like, shit, shit, shit. Like I actually thought that thought. And that, Dude. that can be its own traumatic moment of like, like, who do I really think I am? Like, do I really deeply actually love the people that I say that I love when there's a part of me that like some part that would find it convenient if harm came to them. But again, suppressing that makes it control you. So letting that in be like, yeah, you know what? There's a competitive fucking part of me. There's, there's a part of me that just wants to be the baddest ass motherfucker on this planet and wants to be seen and loved for it. And it's okay that there's the part of me that wants that. And that wants to get all the opportunities and all the sponsorships. And I also don't need to receive all of that. You know, like it's okay that there's a part that wants that. And there's also a much bigger part that just more deeply wants to be in connection with the people around me, whether or not I'm feeling threatened. Yeah. Strangely enough, even on that uh, same incident, I had similar feelings after he went in and not even uh, derived from uh, competitiveness. Like Ian and I had talked about each other going in all the time to the point where like when he finally did, I was like, Oh my God, like I've imagined this, this situation so many times it feels like I manifested it. Mm. And along the line of, you know, imagining your partner going in, uh, you also look at like all of the silver lining things that could happen. You know, you're like, okay, well, if he goes in, like, we'll have this awesome party for him. And like, that'll be rad. Cause I'll see all of our friends that like, you know, and <laughs> the, the, this thing mm. will fall into place and that thing will fall into place. And, you know, afterwards you're like, Oh my God, did I really think about all of that? Did I really yeah. think about all of the positives that would come of somebody going in like that? It, it, it's hard to reconcile that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, it's one of the original mind fucks for me, and I'm sure this is true for others. Some that may know it, some that may not, but check in with yourself. If you're listening to this, when I first got into the sport, it was apparent it was written all over the place, how dangerous it was. And it was known that like, if you're in this sport for a while, you're going to make some of the best friends of your life and you're going to lose them or they're going to lose you. 
you don't get to pick. And some part of me was like, yeah, you know what? That's the hero's journey I need. You know, the, the people who have been through that are the people with the grit. And those are the people with the, the, you know, they've, they've developed this wisdom. They've developed this, uh, something, you know, they've lived life to have like loved and adventured and lost is to have lived fully. And so there's something about that hero's journey that I think speaks to a lot of us. And it spoke to me. And then also every time I actually did lose somebody, there was a part of me that was like, no, not like this. This is not what I wanted. <laughs> there yeah. was, there was the part of me, there was, the, there was the part of me that was like, yeah, you know, like I am such a badass that I am in this sport where people die all the time and I'm still doing it because, you know, I am the one who conquers my fear and I can handle the loss. And then when the loss happened, it's just like, fuck that part of myself would be the feeling. Like, how did I ever feel like I wanted to get myself into this place, into this mess? But then interestingly that it was true. Being on this journey has actually given me a lot of life experience a lot of wisdom and it's like a lot of ups and downs you know we we talk about the magnitude of life you know you could live a life where you just kind of like little ups little downs and it's mostly just kind of flatline or you can live a life with wide magnitude swings and you know you can you can approach that from the perspective of this is just how life is happening to me or you can approach it from the perspective of this is actually something that i've been choosing all along even when it hurts really really badly even when I feel like maybe I regret the part of myself that was looking forward to such a challenging life in, in all these ways. And yeah, there's, that's one example of a, of a motivational system that, that you can come to terms with and love and see the love in it for yourself all along, or you can subconsciously fight it for years, your choice. All right. So let's get into some, um, you know, practical advice here, because I feel like a lot of people talk about what you just said. And uh, the advice is like, well, you know, we went through this, but we don't want you to go through this, you know, and Mm. I can certainly relate to you. Like I got into base jumping uh, for a lot of things, but I also got into it um, to experience death, to be close to it, to, Mm. you know, you know, I, I don't know if, if, uh, it was motivated to, you know, see like what I had seen. Cause after I'd seen it, I was like, holy shit, man, like that was wild. Um, but certainly there was a motivation to be in a community where, you know, death was on the line and where things could go wild and I would be tested as a human being. Um, And after going through it, I can also tell you exactly what you just said. Like it was one of the most, uh, one of the most positive experiences of my life, like one of the most tragic and yet one of the most, most uh, inspiring. Uh, And, you know, looking at other people in the community, it's hard for me to pick a correct line on that because like, I, I don't wish that experience on anyone. Mm. And yet I envy anyone who's gone through it. Right. So it's like, how do I reconcile those two things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a, a fear of life and there's a love of life and like you can, you can avoid 
ever being exposed to death. Well, you, you can't fully avoid it, but you can try. You can try to avoid being exposed to death. You can try to avoid being exposed to fear and your life may become, will become smaller if you do that. And that's a perfectly okay choice to make. Um, and you can also choose to get as close as possible to the thing that you're afraid of. And that's okay. The, for, for those of us who are, you know, t seeing somebody who's getting into the sport and it's like, man, I really don't want them to experience what I had to experience. It's like, well, maybe that's actually what they want. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe our assumptions, our projections are incorrect. It might be that somebody who is, somebody who is, you know, jumping very complacently and dangerously, maybe there's a part of them that actually wants to have an injury and go through a road to recovery and have that story. And they might not be consciously aware of it, but there might be a part of them that is for some reason attracted to it. And who are we to tell them that that's not right for them? But we can, you know, being with each other and being in connection with each other. That's what this, that's what that means is being in connection with who each of us actually is in that moment and what they actually want. And not assuming that everybody wants to live or that everybody wants to stay in one piece or that they don't want to lose friends or, or that they don't want to have fear or, you know, uh, you know, difficult emotions. Some part of us really wants the fullness of life and the fullness of life can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And certainly includes death. Yeah. For everybody. So what do you say to the jumper that approaches you and you say, you know, you ask, why did you get into the sport? And they reply, I want to experience death. Yeah. Well, I'd say, well, what does, what does that mean to you? Like, do you want to experience actually dying? Like, uh, first of all, like let's define our terms. It's like, if they want to experience death, then great. What do you want to experience about death? What is it that makes you want to experience death? You know, a lot of people would just go straight to trying to talk them out of it. If, if their answer is that I want to actually die and not just be like close to it. It's like, well, what is it that you get from that? What does that do for you? Is it, is it some kind of legacy that you get from having died? Is it, is it that there's some kind of pain that goes away or you feel goes away if you die? Is it, just that you want to be seen as a person who is ready to face death. And what if I see you anyway, regardless of what you, what way you want to be seen? What if I actually see you in a way that you feel truly seen and not try to change you or talk you out of whatever it is that you think you want? And what does that do to that desire in that person? Well, from personal experience, I can say that it, uh, it seems like it reduces it. Um, you know, I think one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard about somebody wanting to experience death was not in the base jumping world, but in just the everyday world where, um, uh, it was a husband and wife and, uh, the husband was suicidal and, uh, the wife for one reason or another, um, at one point, uh, calls up the police and says, Hey, I, I have no reason to really think that this is is happening right now, but I believe my husband is on the Golden Gate Bridge about to commit suicide. Can you go check? Mm -hmm. And uh, she gets a call 15 minutes later uh, and the cops are like, yeah, actually he was uh, on the Golden Gate Bridge and he was, uh, you know, over the rail and we have him now. He's at the, at the station. Like you need to come and get him. 
and they had kids. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a big deal, you know, to like lose a partner and lose a, also a father. And so on in that drive from uh, her home to the station, she had to figure out what to say to this person. You know, how, how do I play this? Um, and the gamut that she came up with was to explain to him how much she accepted that decision to like want to die. And she mm. said, look, if you ever want to do this again, just please call me and I'll go with you. Wow. wow. And she never had to deal yeah. with that again. Yeah. Like he, in that one moment of being seen, of being accepted, um, it totally eradicated um, his uh, desire to experience that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I've noticed in 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 my life when others have feelings about my base jumping, you know, like like my partner, uh, if they're trying to talk me out of it, it's not at all effective. But if they're like, you know, hey, so I know that you're gonna go, you want to go jump, great. Uh, if you die, I'll miss you, and I love you. It's like then that like changes the calculus a little bit. It's like, okay, yeah. well I had been considering a bunch of factors and now somebody's giving me more factors to consider, but it's not that I have to consider them. It's not that they're telling me what's going to, it's just like, Oh, well I, well, if I'm feeling this love from this person and that's more present with me right now, then that changes the whole calculus a little bit. Totally. Like the more present I am with how much I'm loved, the, the more, you know, on, on both sides there's like the fear comes up a little bit but not not the kind of fear if i'm not resisting it's not the kind of fear that would make me more dangerous in my jumping it's the kind of fear that makes me more vigilant and then there's also a little bit of a reduction in the desire to really charge it hard you know it's like and that that might make it that the the kind of jump that i might make upon hearing such a uh you know loving and accepting uh phrase or statement from my partner might be that I'm actually just more interested in doing an enjoyable flight where I'm taking and smelling the roses and enjoying my flight. And like, like the things that I'm the subtle subconscious things that I might've been driven to do become less. It's like, if I'm already loved as I am, then I don't need to prove anything on this jump to myself or to any, anyone watching or to anybody that I might imagine watching from, you know, from the other side, you know, Okay. So shifts the calculus. At this point, we've unpacked this thing quite a bit. Let's uh, spend a little time packing it back up. Yeah. Um, now, I can say personally, I, I came to base jumping to, you know, be a confident executor in a dangerous environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people um, would agree with that. Uh, what role does fear play? as we try and be these confident executors in this incredibly dangerous environment. Yeah. Well, I, I would suggest that like, what if, what if fear is exactly what we're looking for? What if fear is actually what we're here for and also what we're afraid of? And that makes them in some sense, the same thing. And what if we approach fear as something that we welcome and that we love and that we honor that we are here for? We're here for this fear. I'm going to feel this fear. I'm going to feel the fullness of my life, which includes all of the physical, social, abstract, ego, identity fears. And 
just pay attention to them and let them transform me into what it, whatever it is that I become. Okay. So if we're going to turn fear from an enemy into an ally, what's the first step in doing that? <sighs> yeah. I mean, the easy answer is feel it, but that's also not necessarily the deepest answer. Cause it's like, well, if you have some, some deep subconscious inhibitions, then just taking that instruction might not necessarily take you there. So inquire, like, what is it, what is it that I'm afraid of? And it might be many, many different things. And how is that fear love? How is, how is the kind of fears that I have been afraid of feeling? How are those actually a deeper love for myself if I feel them? Okay. So observe it, accept it, question it. I wouldn't even say question because question implies a little bit of skepticism, but more like okay. inquire, welcome, inquire. Welcome. welcome and feel it when you, when you feel it in your body, when you're standing at exit point next time, feel in your body, what that fear feels like. And don't try to understand it, analyze it, judge it. Just feel the feeling in your body and see what happens. Cause if you're actually feeling a feeling, it always moves and shifts. If you're resisting a feeling, it'll stay the same. And there's this, there's this fear that we have, or this, there's this belief that we have that if we, if we let a feeling in, it'll take over us. If we let it in, we'll be, we'll go crazy. We'll be driven nuts by it. Uh, it'll never go away or it'll drive our behavior, but that's actually the opposite. What happens if you put yourself in the situation where you're feeling that emotion that you've been avoiding and you actually let yourself just feel it, feel into the texture of it, feel into the color, what muscles are tense? What happens if you go into it deeper and let those muscles be more tense? If you're shaking, what if you just let yourself shake even more? And then what happens? What happens on the other side of that? How prepared do you feel? How calm do you feel? How, how do you approach uh, the jump itself? And how do you approach those that you're with? And yeah. do this in other environments too, you know, having a difficult conversation with a partner. Well, it sounds like uh, what you're presenting is that fear is an incredible tool for self-knowledge, self-awareness, um, and, uh, you know, overall preparedness. Yeah. Well, I'll take that one to the bank. Um, and I am also going to, uh, employ that little tactic that you brought up earlier, of, you know, wherever moment, an exit point, uh, passing it around, let's, let's share some fears. Um, ultimately, yeah. um, I think they're incredible sensors and, um, you know, fear is a, is a great emotion, uh, to let into your world in order to, uh, help you make better decisions. Yeah. And if you, if you're really interested in the things that I had to say, and you want to learn more about this, uh, I have a podcast with a coach of mine, uh, it's called the art of accomplishment. And we explore how self self exploration can shift our lives in all kinds of different ways and leading to deeper connection with ourselves, our environment and others. And uh, yeah, the art of accomplishment. Sweet, and uh, we'll post a link in our uh, in our little notes here at the bottom, so you don't have to go searching for it. You can just click. And um, Brett, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. This was uh, like I think the first discussion that we've had that's universally applicable. Like we've been mm -hmm. hammering on base jumping, base jumping, base jumping, and this one just feels like it's 
applicable across the board to every single thing. So yeah. thank you so much, man, for sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thank you. This is emotional base jumping. You know, it's like base jumping is a, like what we've talked about is that base jumping is actually an emotionally driven thing, whether we like it or not. And also the things that we learn from it can teach us to go into our emotions, approach them the way that we approach base jumping and feel them and feel life fully no matter what we're doing. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. You're most welcome. All right, Lo. So, um, uh, episode with Brett Kistler ended up being about a topic that you uh, have an incredible amount of experience and um, interest in. And so, uh, for this outro, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to bring him back on the podcast so that you can ask him some questions and clarify some points that I feel were important to you. All right. Well, let's get him back on, and uh, here we go. All right. Hi, Brett. Thanks for joining us to close out your session with Matt. I'm really sorry I couldn't make it. Yeah, it's really good to join. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm fascinated about the the psychological and the physiological effects that come with bass. And it sounds like you're someone who's put a great deal of thought into the subject. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have. And I really appreciate your level of uh, self-awareness and your ability to tie your motivations and actions back to, to previous behavior patterns and maybe the conditioning that you received uh, through the hazing you received from your older brothers. It sounded uh, like equal parts, super fucking fun and scary as fuck childhood. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's base jumping, right? Like there's a reason why I found myself in that. It's like scary, scary as fuck and also really fun. And there's like a lot of brotherhood and camaraderie in it. And uh, you know, it's a little wild. Yeah. You know, that point that you guys discussed about how seasoned jumpers can be so much more open with their fears is totally spot on. Um, I think base, if you're in it long enough, seems to have this universal capacity to, to humble everyone. Mm -hmm. And that is really expressed through people's openness and acknowledgement of their fears. Um, another takeaway that I had from listening to you guys' discussion was how subjective this experience with base really is. And I mean, I think that that could even spread out to the human existence just in general. But there was a couple of points where our opinions seemed to diverge. And um, the one that I can think of first is like how we perceived fear as, or how you perceived fear as a catalyst uh, for our body to metabolically prepare for, for what we're about to do. Mm -hmm. And then another one was, um, it being fear that is the sole moderator of complacency. Um, so let's dive into those for a second and let, let's see if you can clear it up. Like, yeah, I think that these are giant topics and we could fill an entire podcast with them just alone. So I, I'll try to keep it brief. So in, in regards to complacency, uh, yes, I think that fear can be a, a factor, but I think it's unreliable. Um, fear is very much like an illusion. It's our reaction to a perceived danger. And I, I think we all know that human perception can be pretty squirrely. Um, how you experience fear changes drastically. Um, on a variety of factors that can play into this, like 
exposure to stimulants, too much coffee, for example, your fitness level, uh, how much sleep you've had. And I think for me, complacency really comes down to a level of personal discipline and training. Um, let's take my uh, pre-jump process, for example, which I've developed through um, talking to fighter pilots, high-performing athletes, uh, listening to elite soldiers, my training through uh, as a first responder. In life and death situations, it, it's imperative for us to downregulate the physiological effects of fear. So when we're downregulating that fear, we're, we're trying to get into the sense of flow. And, and that seems a little bit opposite of what you're trying to say. Maybe, maybe you could clarify a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah. To clarify, to clarify on one point, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I'm not sure if I said this, but if I did say that fear is the only moderator of complacency, then that's not what I mean to say. There's always so many different stories that are always, that are all true or somewhat true. Um, so yeah, that's not what I mean to say. Uh, I do think that there's a really big component to the different ways that we process and prioritize or suppress fear and how that plays into complacency because it really affects what signals we're allowing in. And I completely agree with you that our fears, whether it's base jumping or whether it's just in you know going on a date, are, are representations of our history. They're conditioned responses that aren't necessarily or that you know, they, they kind of necessarily aren't actually attuned to reality until we process the the data that's coming in now, our reality in the moment. And so that's one of the things that actually processing fear does. And so uh, you, you mentioned this discipline uh, with practices to downregulate the nervous system, downregulate fear. And I think there's a common misconception that, you know, what we want to do is we want to reach a calm state so that we're acting from from a place of calm and we're relaxed and we're not panicked. And so we often try to go straight to that end state by kind of forcing that state. So we try to downregulate the fear. Uh, and there's practices that you can do that will dissociate you from the fear so you're not feeling it. And there's also practices you can do that will actually move the fear through so that it then settles. And so like one of the things you could do, for example, is breath work. Uh, Matt mentioned that you do some breath work at, at the exit point, and that's also something people do often in a plane. They're like, you know, there's, a, there's this thing that people say, like fear is excitement without the breath. Uh, and I think the, the thing that's true there is that breathing actually increases the rate of emotional processing. So if you have, if you have a bunch of fear in your system, whether, you know, regardless of how accurate that fear might be, or regardless of how conditioned it might be on your past, that may or may not be a match for the present, the the breath work that you might do or the practices that you might do to be in touch with yourself will allow that fear to move and it'll adjust such that you are now in the present moment and no longer in the past state where the fear was conditioned. And so Great. if you if you remain we, we're in all the past about, state. Pardon me. We're all about actionable advice, right? So right. Um, we'll be specific here. Um, like my technique that I like, it seems to be most effective for me is box breathing or combat breathing. Mm -hmm and um and then visualization and mm -hmm. then uh vocalizing a pre-flight checklist and then vocalizing em emergency procedures and i don't feel in my pre-flight check or my pre-flight preparation that there's a disassociation it's more of a, a down regulation like you talked about mm -hmm. 
And, um, and um, again, this is highly subjective, but I feel like this is playing so much into my level of complacency because, or lack of that, because these I'm relying on the skills that I've trained and I've trained them so many times that they're submitted now to muscle memory so that I'm allowing myself to react intuitively mm-hmm. and also being observant to as, as much as possible to any possible hazards. And, um, I think this is a more competent way, um, f- for approaching fear at the exit point by being more, um, let's say logic driven than feeling driven. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I would say that actually the way the thing that you've described is actually no different than what I'm than what I'm proposing. So if you're doing box breathing, what the breathing is doing is getting getting your getting emotions moving, getting the fear moving. The fear, but because you're not resisting the fear, it's just something that is felt as a it's felt as an activation in your body. It's felt as just that you're present. And then what you're doing with the checklists is orienting your attention to what matters. And when your entire being, when your body, including the, the on the level of muscle memory, are satisfied that your awareness is oriented towards what matters, then it will relax naturally back down into a parasympathetic calm state. But if you're not successful in doing this, then what, what tends to happen is that you still have that fear stuck in your system somewhere and that will show up as muscle tension. So if you have people who aren't breathing, like students on their first skydives, you know, they're not breathing, they're not, they're not as aware of what's going on. They, they have, you know, some kind of internal conflict about what they're supposed to be putting their attention on and they're unfamiliar with it. Then there'll be a lot of fear stuck in the nervous, er, stuck in the musculature as fight, flight, freeze, which leads to, you know, locking up your muscles and potato chipping or flailing, or even just having like unnecessary or unhelpful, unconstructive frustration and anger, which might be the flight, the fight version. So what I, what I'm kind of describing here is I think, that what you're, what you've described as your procedures are actually a really good, uh, very specific way to approach the thing that I've been talking about in a very general way. And so you, cool. you could sit and meditate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, let's, uh, let's jump on, um, to another point that you brought up about, um, about sharing fear at the exit point. And, um, from my experience, um, the last thing that I, well, let's, 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 uh, zoom out and leave a little bit wider here. In my experience of opening, te- opening technical exit points, the last thing that I wanted to hear from my jumping partners was their fears. What I wanted to hear and what I want to hear is objective observations to make sure that I haven't missed any potential dangers. And I feel that, you know, um, for maybe a lack of a better term, my, ability, my cognitive ability at the exit point is somewhat limited with the amount of stimulation. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about down-regulating, I'm thinking through my procedures, I'm vocalizing, I'm also going through the, the measurements. Um, and I don't want to hear from my partners, dude, I'm so scared right now. I don't want to crash. I don't want to be obliterated on a pile of rocks. What I want to hear is objective observations of, you know, it's 150 down to 70 out. Um, I'm a little bit concerned because the last time I jumped something with those measurements, my toes were pretty fucking close. And I think that that is a huge shift in approach of how we're communicating at the exit point. 
And mm. perhaps we have the same opinions here, but maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, yeah. I think again, what you're describing is a is a subtlety. Um, I think what you're what you're looking for at the exit point is you want a really high signal to noise ratio of what you're really what your joint awareness is on. So it might not be helpful for you for somebody to walk up next to you and be spending some of that exit point time on just talking about broadly how scared they are or like how concerned they are about their taxes or like something to totally irrelevant, <laughs> you know, or, or just April. something that's very obvious, you know, like, yeah, I am afraid of exploding on the rocks. I don't want that to happen. Uh, you don't really gain anything new from that. But if it's something that someone's feeling and they're feeling shame about feeling that, it actually is helpful for them just to, to voice it and have it be seen. So on, on one level, even saying I'm afraid of my taxes can like, have your body release that fear. Uh, and it's, especially if there's a culture of that being welcomed and just dissipated. But then the thing that you're describing that is really in a technical jump, keeping you safe is, you know, what in your words, you said, well, I'm concerned about this or that or the other thing. The concern comes from a fear. The fear is your body, your nervous system, your awareness tracking where the threat is coming from. And so the thing that you're pointing to is, you know, when you're on a technical jump with experienced jumpers, you're looking at very subtle dangers and you are assessing those things and that given the limited amount of processing time you have to make a jump and be in a jump uh you're wanting to be in a high high signal to noise ratio processing of what's going on so you want to be looking at the details and you do want to be doing it objectively if you're looking at something objectively you're also able to experience the emotions that that observation brings up you know if you're if you're seeing that there's something that is dangerous that you weren't expecting and you're cons you're attached to making the jump versus walking down then whatever disappointment might come up or whatever whatever feelings or emotions might arise from the observation you want to be able to feel them and if you don't feel them and process them through and reach homeostasis after processing it then your decision making is going to be distorted by the information that you're not allowing to move. So I think, again, it comes back to a, a common misconception, which is that, yes, we want to be in a calm state when we're jumping, but going straight to the calm state doesn't necessarily work uh, because if we have signals coming in and we're not listening to them and we suppress them, then they just continue to knock on our door, even if it's just in the, in the form of held muscle tension that makes us less efficient and takes us out of flow. That's absolutely correct. I mean, it's definitely easier on some jumps than others to get to that low anxiety state. Brett, we're running out of time. Thanks so much for answering those questions and really yeah. looking forward to having you back with us again in the future. Yeah. Hey, thank you for the clarifications. They were, they were really good. Cheers, buddy. And uh, we want to throw out a shout out and a thanks to our uh, co-producer and uh, sound engineer, Mark Stockwell. Uh, thanks again for uh, riding along with us. Cheers, everybody. See you on the next one. Cheers. Ciao.